Good morning. I'm glad that you're here today. It's a beautiful, beautiful Lord's Day. You know, I had to kind of chuckle a little bit. You know how last Sunday I brought in leaves and I told you how much I really appreciated them? I worked about three to four hours in the yard yesterday and I didn't appreciate one of them. <laughs> Isn't that funny how we, uh, depends upon the context. All right, good morning. Um, here we go. Uh, the title of the sermon is Own It. And here it is. You know me, and you know that if I have the opportunity to bring something in, I like to do it because I think it exacerbates or brings a little bit more meaning to the meaning. I think that's why God used, Jesus used parables. Jesus used parables because he took something that you understood and he elevated its meaning. Well, today, I didn't bring in anything extra because here's what I've got. I've got a fascinating story. And not only is it a fascinating story... It's a little disheartening and a little heartbreaking if you really read it and you really think about it. And it's about David, and we'll get into the story here in just a minute, but I want you to look at the title because the main crux of today's sermon is about this notion of owning it. And here's what I mean. What I mean, and I thought you might, you know, um, and the next slide, I thought maybe you might get a little chuckle before we start, but it's about accountability. Now here, it's going to be kind of at times today a little bit of a heavier topic, so before we get too carried away, I thought maybe you might get a little chuckle out of it first. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can be here today and Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this place. I thank you for our brothers and sisters that are meeting all around the globe. And Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless us, that you would bless them, that we would lift up the name of Jesus. You know, I really appreciated, um, I really appreciated Lester's comments earlier because he's right about the fact that we are here together, all of us. We can lift one another up. We can help one another. This is a group. If someone is hurting, then we're all hurting. If someone is happy, then we're all happy. Because, Heavenly Father, there's not a one of us here that's perfect. And we're not going to get to heaven simply by ourselves. We're not going to get there on our own merits. Heavenly Father, I would ask that you'd be with us today in corporate worship here. And that you would be with us during the sermon. And that, Heavenly Father, we would look at this story and this account... And while on the one hand it's kind of heartbreaking, on the other hand, you have the power to make good come from bad. And so, Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we're glad that you're here with us and we're glad that we can meet together on the first day of the week on a glorious, beautiful day. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, here you go. Well, there's no other way today to get started than just to get started. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to 2 Samuel 11. And I'm not going to lie to you, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to be perfectly honest with you today. We're going to read several verses today before it's over with, okay? So go to 2 Samuel 11, and I want to start with a, an account uh, that many of you are probably familiar with, and if you're not, then I think you'll find it interesting. Um, it is a story about David and Bathsheba, all right? It is a story about King David and a woman by the name of Bathsheba, and a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. And the best way to get into this is just to get into it. So let's read this together, okay? 
All right, we're in 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse 1. And I think you're really going to get a lot out of this if you read with me, okay? All right, 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, here we go. I understand that we have, you know, people of all ages in, in a setting like this, but I also understand that the Bible is the Bible, and I also understand that there are things that we need to learn regardless of our age. So let's make sure we understand, and I'm not trying to be crass, but here we go. The King David is on the roof of his house, the palace, and he looks down and he sees this woman bathing. And when he sees her bathing, obviously he finds her very beautiful. He calls for her, she comes, he gets to know her, so to speak, and they have sexual relations. What happens then? She goes back to her abode and sends him word shortly thereafter that she is what? She's pregnant. Now I want to throw something out at you right now. Right now. Sometimes when you read this story, or if you were to read this story for the very first time, you might have the assumption that David did not know Uriah the Hittite. And I believe you would be wrong. And I'll show you why here in just a minute. Let's continue. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. 
and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. By the way, so now I want you to consider this. And I, and I don't want to do a bunch of interrupting because honestly, what I want, what I ad lib to the story, the story speaks for itself. David calls for Uriah to come back home. Come on, guys. Come on, come on, come on. You're smart, intelligent people. Why does he call for Uriah and ask for Uriah to come back home? Because he figures if Uriah comes back home, he's going to be anxious to see his wife, and he's going to go, and he's going to see his wife, and he's going to make love to her, and then we can spin off this, the child as being whose? Uriah's and not whose? And not David's. I'm going to tell you something that is going to fascinate you about Uriah here in a moment, I hope. But before, let's, let's, let's continue just for a minute. Okay, here we go. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobosheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Okay, now, here we go. All right, now listen, and here we go. So let's make sure we understand the story. Let's make sure we understand what's going on. But let's understand the significance of a few things. I want to point something out to you that maybe you've caught in this story before and maybe you haven't. Because I think part of it, I'm, I mean, I think, I think probably the main gist of the story is not that difficult for us to understand. We understand that David looked down from his palace, he saw a beautiful naked woman, and he found her very desirable. Now, I'll tell you what, and I'm going to tell you, we can't put, I mean, you probably can't place 100% of, of, of this on David, because Bathsheba also played a part. But the fact of the matter is, who was David? David was the what? He was the king. Now, I want to tell you something about Uriah. And you know what? I, when I realized this, when I realized this, it made me think about Tom's um, communion meditation last Sunday and something that Tom said. And it's funny because we do change as we get a little older. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be 50 tomorrow. Woo! <laughs> 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 
and did I also tell you that, um, I, and I don't want to get too distracted here, I can get off sometimes, but did I also tell you that when I went to eat with the men out of touch the other night, I went to eat with the men out of touch, and I fit right in. But not only do I fit right in, here's the scary part. The scary part was they were going on, when the, when the waitress brought him their bills, they were going on about how they needed to get their, their senior discount, and when she brought all the bills out, I got one too. And you know, at first I thought, hey, I got a senior discount. And then on the way home, I thought, I got a senior discount. <laughs> Uriah the Hittite, and I don't know if you know this or not, and maybe you do, and maybe you don't, but here you go. This is fascinating. Uriah the Hittite was a, one of the Giborim. Now, you're looking at me. Because I'm guessing that you've not heard that term before. Uriah the Hittite was one of the Geborim. There were 37 men that were making up or made up the Geborim. Geborim means in Hebrew, mighty. There were 37 mighty warriors that served David, and Uriah the Hittite was one of them. Guess what? I guarantee you when they told him that Bathsheba was Uriah the Hittite's wife, he knew exactly who Uriah the Hittite was. What do you see in this story about Uriah the Hittite's character? What did you see in the story about Uriah the Hittite's character? What did Uriah the Hittite refuse to do? What did he refuse to do? He refused to go home and be with his wife because the other Geborim were still in the battlefield. Uriah the Hittite was a man who would have laid his life down for David if David had merely asked. In this particular account, Uriah the Hittite had more character in his little finger than David had in his whole body. Now, I want to go on record as saying something before we go any further today, though. Here it is. When you have the opportunity to preach and you have the opportunity to bring sermons, first of all, you have a responsibility. Have you ever heard the expression, call an ace an ace and a spade a spade? Have you ever heard that expression? Okay, when you bring a sermon, you have a responsibility to call an ace an ace and a spade a spade. What's wrong is wrong and what's right is right. And sometimes there's really not a, there, you know, we always kind of say there's gray area. Sometimes there's absolutely no gray area. Sometimes we say that because we want to make it easier on ourselves. But I want you to understand something here today. I want you to understand that I don't stand here before you thinking that I'm better than David.
No, I've never had an adulterous relationship. And no, I haven't had a man killed. Does that mean I am without sin? Now, the interesting thing about it is, so when you preach a sermon like this, we're looking at a man who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. That's what the Bible says about David. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And you know what he did? He messed up. But you know what? He messed up. And when I was making this sermon, I was thinking about the divorce rate in the United States of America. And I was thinking about how many people can't say some of the same things some of you people in here can say. Who in here, raise your hand if you've been married 50 years. Raise your hand if you've been married 50 years. Look around. Look at them. Look at all these old people. <laughs> raise your hand. <laughs> I'm definitely in trouble now. Raise your, <laughs> raise your hand if you've been married 60 years. <laughs> oh, Dad, you're in a world of hurt now, buddy. Okay, now, I don't think anybody's going to raise their hand when I say this, but they might. Is there anybody in here who's been married for 70 years? Who, what's the highest we have? I'm just curious. What, how long? 65. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I look at you, and I look at you with admiration, and I, I mean that sincerely. Jamie and I have been married for 27 years, and, and sometimes I think that's an accomplishment, but then sometimes I realize that that pales in comparison to 65 years. But then I also look around in today's society, and I see so many broken homes, and I see so many people that are, that are struggling, or I see so many people that have been married three or four different times, and I'm not being judgmental. Okay, I'm not being judgmental, but at the same time, as a minister of the Lord's Word, what, 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 you know, when you come to a story like this and you read it, does God make good come from bad? Yes, but do, now listen, and here's the other thing that people sometimes say. People sometimes say, well, it was God's will. Do we really think for one second, guys, hey, do we really think for one second that it is God's will for man to sin? I mean, that doesn't even make a lick of sense. Would it be God's will for man to sin? And I think the unequivocal answer to that would be no. But can God make good come from bad? Okay, here it is. The Bible said, and, 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 and here it is, okay? The Bible said in the Ten Commandments, what is one of the Ten Commandments? By the way, there's two Ten Commandments that David broke here. What are the Ten Commandments? What is one of the commandments that David said? Thou shalt not what? Thou shalt not commit adultery, but what's right above it? Thou shalt not kill. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, one of them says thou shalt not kill, and David had a man killed. I want you to think about this. A man who is described in the Bible as being a man after God's own heart had a man killed. A man that is described in the Bible as being a man after God's own heart had an adulterous relationship 
with Bathsheba. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill, and the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, here it is. I'm just going to be perfectly honest. I have my failings just like you have your failings. And you know what? What if I was preaching? Look, listen, you know what? I look at a guy like uh, Keith. I look at a guy like Keith Dillman. Or I look at, I look at Howard. And I see, I see these big, beautiful farms that they have. Now, you want to know the funny thing about me? I could care less what kind of truck you drive. I could care less what kind of clothes you wear. I could care less how big your house is. But I like your land. Now, so if, if I was going to preach a sermon about greed, or I was going to preach a sermon about lusting after whatever, you know, we all have something different. But is it possible, is it within the realm of possibility that there could be a person in this room that is involved in an adulterous relationship? And the answer is yes. It is possible that there could be a person in this room that is involved in an adulterous relationship. And if they were, then it is my responsibility as a preacher of God's Word to tell you that that is wrong. It is my responsibility to tell you that you need to get out of that relationship. It is my responsibility to tell you that the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not commit adultery. And the Ten Commandments also say you shalt not kill. Except I'm pretty confident that there hasn't probably not too many people in here that have killed someone. So it might be a little bit more likely that there would be someone here who might be in an adulterous relationship. The Bible also says if a man, and, and, and David knew this. David knew that if a man, it said, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. David knew this before he even had the relationship with Bathsheba. But you know what gets me most of all about the story? You know what gets me most of all about the story? And then I'm going to quit talking about that particular account. But here's what gets me the most about the story. Uriah the Hittite was a man of exemplary character. Uriah the Hittite was one of the Gomorrah. Uriah the Hittite was a mighty warrior. Uriah the Hittite was a man that you wanted on your side. Uriah the Hittite was a man that David had relied on to help him win battles. Uriah the Hittite was a man who had protected David. And David had him killed. Jesus says, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about adultery because I want, to, I want to continue with the story because I haven't really got to the crux of the sermon. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus says, and, and you can tell me whether you agree or disagree with this, but here's what Jesus says. Jesus says you don't have to have physical relationships with another if you're lusting after them. If you're lusting after them, then you're already in the wrong. And by the way, how many people in here would be willing to gouge out their eye? Now wait just a minute. Let me see somebody's cell phone. Can I see somebody's cell phone real quickly? Let me see your cell phone. All right, now, here we go. I, I need to cut my hands off. Because I guarantee you that I have used my phone in inappropriate ways. 
Now, I want you to think about that. Now, I'm not going to literally cut my hands off, and I don't believe that Jesus expects you to literally gouge out your eye. But what does Jesus say? He says it'd be better for you to lose your eye than to lose your soul. All right, I want to continue, if you would. I want to go, if you would, I'd like for you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, because I want to get to, to the crux of, of what's going on here and, what's, and, and the crux of the sermon. Because David has committed an atrocious act, make no mistake. He has committed a terrible, terrible act. All right, go to 2 Samuel and chapter 12, and we're just going to look at about the first 17 verses, okay? Here we go. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now pay attention to verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, my friends, you understand the crux of this, don't you? What is the crux of this? The crux of this is, who is the poor man in the story? The poor man is Uriah the Hittite. What is the sheep? The sheep is Bathsheba, the way I see it. Uriah the Hittite, who is a mighty Geborim, who is serving David and doing everything he can for the kingdom of God, who won't even go home and will, refuses to see his wife while the other men are out. That's how much character this man has. This man has this much character. He is a brave, honorable man, and he has a beautiful wife. Hey. Sounds like to me he deserves to have a beautiful, loving wife. These 37 men of renown. They didn't get to be 37 men of renown because they just were leading an ordinary lifestyle. They became 37 men of renown because of their heroic deeds. And guess what? He's got a beautiful sheep. Nathan comes in and he says, and he tells the story to David. And David says that, and David gets angry, justifiably so. Everybody would get angry when you hear that story. You're going to tell me you've got all these sheep and you can't take one of your own sheep to feed someone and you're going to take the poor person's sheep? Are you serious? 
Are you going to tell me, David, that you live in a palace and you have multiple wives and you could probably have more wives if you so chose? Are you telling me that you live off the fruit and the fat and the riches of the land? Are you telling me that you have 37 men who would lay down their life for you at a moment's notice and you have to have another man's wife? David got mad. Nathan says, you are that man. Now, what's, what's, what's David do? Let's see what he does. Let's see what he does. Seriously, let's see what he does. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, and this is the crux of the sermon, my friends, and I hope you're listening. I hope you're listening because every single one of us in here could be David. I am not here to tell you that we are better than David. I am not here to tell you that one sin... Now, I am going to tell you, hey, come on, there's no doubt about it. It's my responsibility to tell you. The Bible says that adultery is wrong, and it also says that murder is wrong. But you know what? I have done things that were wrong. God has given me riches. He has given us the fatness of the land. He has given us freedom. He has given us this wonderful world. He has given us the United States of America. How many of you are happy and proud that you're an American? Now, I'm not trying to turn this into whatever, but I mean, seriously, look at where we live and look at what we have. God says, Tim, come on, because I'm going to put this on me. He says, Tim, I've given you all this and it's not enough. David, I've given you all this and it's not enough. Now, this is where, I'm going to pause for a minute, shut my Bible, so here we go. So this is where David makes a bunch of different excuses, right? This is where David says, I'm under a lot of stress. This is where David says that things are not going good. This is where David says, this is where David comes up with a bunch of different excuses to excuse his behavior, right? Wow. Is that a yes or no? Let's find out what he says. Look at what he says. Then David said to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is the crux of today. David was wrong. 
just like I've been wrong and just like you've been wrong. Hey, come on. I love you, and some of you in here are extremely faithful people, but every single one of you have sinned. I know that because Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room has done so. And I'll go one step further. There have probably been times in my life where I have justified my behavior. I have justified my behavior. I've come up with a lot of different excuses. Or you know what? Maybe I have been a wayward child. Because you know what a wayward child says every once in a while? Every once in a while, a wayward child just says, Mom and Dad, I don't care what you want. I don't want to do it. David did not say that. What did David say? He said, without hesitation, I have sinned against the Lord. And you know what? I don't think he said it that way. I think he said it. I think he was full of remorse. I think he, I think he probably fell to his knees. I think he probably, he may have even rent his clothing. I don't know. But I'll tell you what he said. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. At that exact moment, he owned it. He owned it. Here we go. Do you think it's within the realm of possibility that Jamie's ever been upset with me? <laughs> Do you think it's within the realm of possibility that it's ever been justifiable? But do you think it's all ever been within the realm of possibility that Jamie has said to me, and she's come to me, and she said, I'm upset with you about this, and the very first thing out of my mouth, instead of I'm sorry, or the very first thing out of my mouth was, okay, you're right, I was wrong. The very first thing out of my mouth was a justification for why I behaved poorly. You made me do it. <laughs> do you think it's possible that that's ever happened? I guarantee it has. We've been married 27 years. I guarantee she has come to me at some point, and I have been in the wrong. And as soon as she told me that I was in the wrong, instead of owning that I was in the wrong, I came up with an excuse for why I really wasn't in the wrong, because it was really her fault and not mine. I guarantee you that that has happened. I stand before you a convicted sinner. David did wrong. He should have never committed adultery, and he took it even to a higher level when he had Uriah the Hittite killed. He was wrong. He was wrong. He was wrong. But when it came to his attention, he owned it. And he didn't come up with a bunch of excuses, and he didn't try to justify his behavior. He said, I am wrong. I have sinned against God. Now, here it is, though. Here it is. You guys know this story. Hey, you know the story. What happened to the child that Bathsheba was bearing? The unfortunate aspect of this, and it, it is, and let's just throw adultery and, all, and, and murder out the window right now. Let's just forget about that, and let's just talk about sin in general. Hey, let's just talk about sin in general. Sin carries a repercussion. Always. Sin carries a repercussion. Now, it may not be the death of a child, but there will be a repercussion.
we have a responsibility to think about our families. We have a responsibility to think about our church family. We have a responsibility to think about what our sin will do. Tom said in his communion meditations, he's getting old enough. I may not have finished this thought earlier, but he said in his communion meditation last Sunday that he's getting old enough now that all he really wants is he wants peace. He wants things to be right. It's unfortunate sometimes that we have to get to be 50, 60, 70, 80 years old before that realization dawns on us. Let's finish. I want you to go, if you would, I want you to go to Psalm 51. And this is the last item that we're going to look at today. Because there is some really some good that I think that comes from this. I think there is some good. And I think if you'll look at Psalm 51 with me, I think you can see some of the good. And, and, and I want you to think about David saying these words. I want you to think about what has happened when you read these words. And I want you to think about whether or not you could say them in your own personal life. I'll tell you what I think is kind of interesting sometimes, and I'm going to say this and then we'll read it, but what I think is kind of interesting is, is we sometimes act like the Word of God only applied back in the day and that it doesn't apply today. We act like God can't do today exactly what He did back then. God can do anything. Amen? Look at what it says here. It says, Have mercy on me, O God. Hey, now I love you, but focus in right now. And I'm not being critical, but here's what I'm saying. If you want to receive a blessing from being in the house of the Lord today, then you have to allow God to work through your spirit. You have to read these words, but you have to more than read them. You have to understand them. You have to empathize. You have to sympathize. Because you could be David. In fact, you are David. And so am I. Look at what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Now listen, listen, brothers and sisters. Create 
in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Please, God, don't cast me from your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's a song, and I can't remember, it's kind of all of a sudden started going through my head, but do you remember the song? How many of you in here listen to K-Love a little bit? Maybe a little bit, maybe, maybe not. And the song goes, I have wandered, bring me back in this darkness, lead me through until all I see is you. God, I'm running for your heart, I'm running for your heart, till I am a soul on fire. God, I'm longing for your ways, I'm waiting for the day. Till I am a soul on fire. But what I like about that is, I have wandered, bring me back. In this darkness, lead me through. Until all I see is you. And you know what? Don't tell me for one second that we aren't like that sometimes. Don't tell me for one second that God knows. He knows. He knows when we're in the valley. He knows when we're in the tunnel. He knows when we have sinned. He knows when the oppression of our sin is like a yoke around our neck. He knows. He knew David had sinned. And when David owned it, when David owned it, when David said, I have sinned against God, God, please don't leave me. Don't leave me now. God, I need your help. God. Restore your spirit in me. Because you know what I really want? I want joy. And I want peace. Now, there is no doubt in my mind God did not approve of what transpired. But I might add, God can make good of bad. And out of this union came the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth. And his name was Solomon. Ask God to create within you a new spirit. And he can do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for letting us be here today. And I thank you, God, for... And I know this may sound kind of crazy, but... I thank you for the people that have failed... Because we have failed. 
I thank you for the people that have cried out to you because we have cried out to you. I thank you, Lord, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us. And I thank you, Lord, that you can create a clean, holy, righteous spirit within each one of us. That no matter what we're going through, no matter what we've done, no matter what sin we're currently committing, if we come to you and we pray with sincerity that you can give us joy once again, you will do so because I firmly believe there's nothing you'd rather do. We are the ones that have to be open and we are the ones that have to ask and we are the ones that have to desire. Thank you, God, for being the awesome God that you are. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.